0: Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. This is episode 38. Leslie Jameson is our featured guest. She's touring her latest book, The Recovering. I got a chance to talk to her in the lobby of the King Edward Hotel. She was here in Toronto. ...for the In Her Voice Festival hosted by Ben McNally Books. Shortly, we'll listen to that interview I had with Leslie Jamison ...about the recovering, intoxication, and its aftermath. We're focusing on the question of inspiration for the American drunkard storyteller. How is creativity affected by the new reality of authors in sobriety... I guess I have more experience on this question with musical performers, but it's a big question for everyone. If I'm no longer drinking, drugging, how will I manage business, parenting, rock and roll, surgery, schmoozing, and of course creative writing? Who among us didn't fear that without our drug of choice we would stand naked to the world without our mojo? Later in the show, I'll talk about uh, musical battles (laughs) with the same issue. You'll meet Steve and Lucy from the recently reunited Acid Test. That's a 1990s band signed to Sire Records. Part of the band's breakup had to do with the collapse of the music industry at the time, and part of it had to do with addiction and mental health. Lucy DeSanto, the lead singer... Her day job is treatment counselor at Bellwood Health Services in Toronto. We'll end the show with a song from Acid Test's latest recording from their 20th year reunion. The album's called Just Right. Both Lucy and Steve were on IndyCan Radio with me, which is heard on Sirius XM. And this segment that uh, I saved for this show Uh, Lucy tells us about a song, Ordinary People, and for her, how it looks at that familiar addict angst of longing to be or feel normal when everybody else looks more comfortable than we feel. Now, let's take you to the lobby of the Toronto's King Eddie Hotel and my chat with Leslie Jameson. Let's do it.
1: This is Leslie Jamieson, author of The Recovering, Intoxication and Its Aftermath, and you are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio.
0: For me, being a Canadian, in college I studied sort of the southern gothics, right? So mm-hmm. I got a little bit of Americana. Yeah. But, you know, learning about Gene Reese and Raymond Carver, Charles Jackson, well, I knew his movie, yeah.
1: right? But yeah. I didn't know the
0: backstory. Dennis Johnson, uh, John Berryman. That was an adventure in itself. It reads almost more like a documentary Hmm. than a memoir Mm -hmm. or a strictly history dissertation. Mm -hmm. And is that well received by everybody?
1: Well, first of all, I'm glad that it felt like an adventure to you because it felt that way to me too. Like, um... Both because I was so personally invested in these questions, like it wasn't yeah. just an abstract intellectual question of what's the influence of recovery on creativity. It was like I was, you know, waking up every day and trying to figure out a like how to just get through the day without booze, and then b what it would be like to be a writer without booze. And so I was bringing all of that baggage with me into the archives, and you know, it. it, it, it meant it was very personally charged for right. me i would say people have very different reactions to kind of bringing together the memoir form and this more research driven approach so i think some people are very excited by it but i think some people feel like the research is an intrusion on the memoir some people feel like the memoir is an intrusion on the research but for me it's it's just a natural expression of what it means to be alive in a certain way, that you're always bringing your own personal story into conversation with other stories that you encounter, whether you encounter them talking to strangers in a meeting, whether you encounter them um, reading the news, whether you encounter them in archives, like you're always thinking about your life in relation to other lives.
0: That's why it feels like like documentaries. There's always Mm -hmm. a personal interest story, right, Mm -hmm. where we're following someone from life altering event, mm-hmm. and then the journalism, right? These are the statistics, these are the facts, mm-hmm. these are what other people are going okay. through. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about your your own particular circumstances. You said that uh, drinking, in in your section called Abandon, drinking felt like the opposite of restriction. It was freedom. It was giving into wanting rather than mm-hmm. refusing it. Uh, it was abandon. Abandon is in recklessness, but also, sudden departure, leaving behind the starving self, its cold, skeletal shell. Because it wasn't just drinking. There was food issues. Uh, there was uh, cutting. There was, you know, codependency. But interestingly enough, drinking, you could do that with reckless abandon.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, if you talk to almost anybody with a substance issue, I think it's pretty rare that you would find a substance issue as is this, like island in their mm-hmm. life with n- with no other kinds of dysfunction related to it or attached to it. I think for me, certainly, there were these self-destructive impulses that tried to work themselves out in a lot of different realms in relation to food, in relation to booze, in relation to love. Um, part of what I was trying to capture in that passage was this idea that part of what seduced me about booze was this feeling that it could kind of liberate me from mm-hmm. this experience of self in which I was constantly um, trying to control my behaviors or restrict my behaviors, constantly trying to do what I thought I was supposed to do, and that Mm -hmm. booze offered this other way of being that felt freer. And and by the end of my drinking, it didn't feel very free at all, but that was the kind of promise at the beginning.
0: Uh, Now, you really seem to identify with uh, Jean Reese. She was born around the time of Bill Wilson and lived a little longer than him.
1: She drank longer than him, too, you know, and and part of what was amazing about Jean Rhys, I mean, sort of terrifying, amazing, is that she drank so much and lived so long. Like, she she really drank for many, many years, and you would have thought almost that the drinking would have destroyed her before it did. I identified with her and and was fascinated by both her work and her story, because a lot of the questions that her writing wrestles with Mm -hmm. are questions that... Um, I've wrestled with or that I I wanted my writing to wrestle with, which is to say, like, gets attached to being a woman who um, suffers or who suffers visibly, what -hmm. what ends up being deeply unappealing to a lot of people, Mm about the kind of silhouette of a woman who's crying or a woman who seems to be, like, performing her pain in some way. Um, So the way that Jean Rhys sort of wrote about... Not only pain, but the kind of shame that gets attached to pain yeah. was really interesting to me. Um, and then certainly the way that she found both a kind of relief in drinking, but also a, a deep kind of claustrophobia in drinking um, yeah. was, was something that, you know, it fascinated me in part because it resonated with things that I had felt, but it fascinated me also because it, her life took yeah. a very different course than my own did. Well,
0: well, there's a big difference in accepting you have a problem and resigning yourself. That this is how it is. In getting to know her through your writing, I, I get the sense that she sort of resigned herself to, well, I made my bed, I'm gonna lie in it.
1: Yeah, she said it. Well, I think she stopped drinking once just for a month, um, but the, the thing that she felt strongest about that month was that there was such a relief in that first drink at the end of it, yeah. you know, that that first kick of coming back. You know, Reese never really got sober and was never in any kind of recovery, but looking through her archives, I was actually struck by the fact that it seemed like she was drawn to some of the exercises that shape the recovery process, even mm. if she didn't get to them through recovery itself. So a kind of self-inventory process would show up over and over again in her work and in her writings, um, and it looked a lot like an A. Four Step to me, even yeah. though. Uh, it you know wasn't happening under those auspices and wasn't labeled that way but there was something in her that was like yearning for that project of self-examination.
0: What is uh, drinking like to excess uh, if not seeking, right? I yeah. mean you're looking yep. for something yep. it's a solution to a problem.
1: Yep. Right? Yeah. So yeah.
0: you don't stop seeking because you've you know yeah. found a a part way solution, right? Right, right. right,
1: right, right. And that sense and I think that sense of um, yearning is It it animated her drinking, and it also animated her work in a certain way because she's clearly an example of somebody who drank in deeply self-destructive ways, but also produced extraordinary work, Mm -hmm. kind of in the midst of that drinking. And it's not that the drinking wasn't kind of corroding her life in all these real ways, but that she was also producing you know, these these brilliant novels that we still read and that I think one of the common denominators between that self-destruction and that creation was yeah. this sense of seeking and the sense of yearning and, and wanting to believe that she could somehow redeem all of her suffering by mm-hmm. making this beautiful art from it or out of it.
0: And that whole idea of uh, finding your creativity on the other side, uh, Ernie Kurtz, who did his... PhD thesis on the early history of AA Mm -hmm. he said once that we are destined to thirst what are we going to thirst for right Mm -hmm. so recovery isn't necessarily a provisional life and a provisional way of expression right you used uh, I think Mm -hmm. a great example you were talking about Raymond Carver he was waking up at 5 each day to write replacing chaotic fury with discipline Carver's sobriety isn't uh, ascetic, it's just trying to imagine desire. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Well, I loved, um, I thought so too when I saw, I mean, part of what I loved in um, Carver's poetry, like the poetry he wrote when he was sober was Mm -hmm. um, that it was so much about pleasure. Like it wasn't just about deprivation or Mm -hmm. loss or kind of like, it didn't seem like a poetry of white knuckling and yeah. like like mourning booze so much as thinking about, you know, he writes about imagining this like ship with all these, um, with like a buffet and all of his friends. And there's something kind of like wry and droll about sort of, almost claiming the right to be somebody who just wants to organize life around around pleasures. He talks about eating buttery popcorn and watching, like, the lights on a distant hill. And, and, and I loved, on a kind of philosophical level, I loved the idea that you could think about sobriety not in terms of deprivation, but in terms of other sources of pleasure. And on a personal level, I think I was just hungry for proof that, like, you could be excited about things, even if you right. were drinking.
0: Right, like, yeah. yeah. And and it's hard to see from the other side. In fact, impossible to see. Right? I mean, the construct necessary to continue uh, the self damage.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't allow for wouldn't wouldn't would feel empty if it wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: Can you talk a little bit about the lost weekend? You tell this great story that I I don't know other listeners might not be familiar with it either. But uh, Charles Jackson, he was pretty dismissive of AA when he wrote it. Right. And then this uh, doctor, I think a Philadelphia doctor from the Saul Clinic wrote to him, said, you got to write the sequel. Right. Yeah. You've got the what it was like. Now we need uh, I think the character's name is Don. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we need uh, life after. And then, boom, here's the author in his clinic looking yep. for help, and yeah. and the irony yeah. isn't missed on either party, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so The Lost Weekend is a novel, basically, a, a, you know, a deeply autobiographical novel about kind of like one long bender, and Jackson wrote it when he was sober, but he ended up relapsing, and in part, I mean, he talks about this in interesting ways, but in part actually because of the success of that novel, that the... When you were talking about seeking, I think mm-hmm. part of what had kept him sober was that he was seeking a, a kind of success or a kind of literary glory, and then once he got it, he didn't know what to seek anymore, yeah. and that was part of what yeah. his relapse was about. But um, and was, even
0: you know, in early AA, right? Mm-hmm. Like he kind of wanted the ego deflation at depth yeah. but he yeah. also kind of wanted to be recognized. Absolutely, and, yeah.
1: absolutely, yeah. And it's I like a, that idea. It's a I mean, dualism. That was an important point he made to the doctor that, like, authors aren't in the business of self-help, right? Like, he didn't want to write a how-to manual on how to get sober and didn't believe that people should look to literature for that. But um, there was also something really moving to me about the humility of being seen by all these people as a kind of expert on drinking because he had written this novel that was seen as, like, you know, it was called The Definitive Portrait of the Alcoholic. Yes. But that he ended up coming to a place where he recognized that the kind of expertise that had allowed him to write that novel, yes, it was, like, deeply self-aware, and yes, there was a lot of intelligence in it and a kind of clear-eyed vision of reality, but it wasn't actually enough to keep him sober, and he needed something else he needed something outside of his own intelligence and and, um, you know that, that sense of sort of simultaneously thinking of himself as an authority and he was kind of an egomaniac but like also recognizing that he wasn't Enough. um, That was really moving to me.
0: Throughout uh, the book, you struggle with things like uh, bumper sticker recovery, like slogans, for Mm -hmm. instance, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're you know simple truths, but they can also represent kind of an Mm anti-intellectualism. So, uh, where are you at with that? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, in in the book, I try to chart. Um, an evolution from being pretty intuitively dismissive of a lot of like recovery cliches and kind of cliche more generally to really finding a deep sort of value in cliches that has to do with acknowledging commonality and acknowledging Mm -hmm. like this simple phrase can apply to another person and it can apply to me because my experience is in lots of ways, ultimately not that unique. um, But also really starting to see cliches as useful, like in the same way that currency is useful because two people recognize the same currency or language itself is useful because the same word means the same thing to two different people. It's like, okay, a a cliche is something that I can offer out of my experience to another person who might have had a very different experience, but it can ring true to both of us and become a kind of common denominator in that way like there was an yeah, a time utility. saver yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and a, and a, and it just like it might mean two different things to two different people but the fact that it means something to both of them is like a, a place to start from or mm-hmm. provides the kind of traction
0: how, how would you answer this sentence uh, I hope now that the book is out it will lead to blank
1: yeah. um
0: for
1: you. Yeah. For me? <laughs> yeah, and for the audience. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, if, if the book helps people um, understand their own lives in a new way or a different way or understand the experience of someone close to them who's struggling with addiction, like, that's all I want from it. But I guess I also hope that, you know, I imagine readers out there who are still drinking or still using and are in that place that you were describing earlier, finding yes. it really hard to imagine that other side of like yeah. what would life look like without it. And if the book offers some glimpse of at least what that other life looked like for me or some of the other figures in the book, like mm-hmm. that glimpse of a kind of possibility on the other side, it's so much of what I was hoping to offer.
0: Could you see yourself getting more involved in not treatment per se, but a caregiving role?
1: I'm careful to say what I'm an expert in and what I'm not an expert in. I mean, I'm a writer who's written this book and I hope that it means something to people. Um, But I also, I I don't want it to kind of try to play the role of like God or savior, or therapist or or, yeah, you know, there are things that I am and things that I'm not. But one of the kind of crazy, scary, but also sometimes wonderful things about putting a book out there in the world is you just don't exactly know what everybody's going to take from it. Yeah, Yeah.
0: more chaos. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, enjoy Canada. Thank
1: you so much. It's great to be here. My mom's Canadian, actually, so uh, okay. it's a kind of ancestral homecoming. Uh, yeah.
0: If uh, people want to stalk you or follow you, you have your own website. Hi. It's easy enough to just Google you and follow what you're writing, right? Yeah, it's
1: just my name.
0: And uh, you're on social media? I'm on
1: Twitter, yeah, as well, so it's easy okay. to find a- me there. Okay, and
0: that's you or a team of... Uh, Twitter experts uh, managing your brand.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I am my own brand manager. Yeah.
0: Thanks so much for yeah. spending some time it's with really, us.
1: Really, really great to meet you. <laughs> Hi, this is Kim, Panel 67,
2: Area 83 Delegate of Eastern Ontario International, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Podcast.
0: From uh, Amazon's About the Author, Leslie Jamieson is the author of the essay collection The Empathy Exams, a New York Times bestseller, and the novel The Gin Closet, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, and the Oxford American, among others. She's a columnist for the New York Times Book Review. She teaches at Columbia University and lives in Brooklyn with her family. So you can see we only scratched the surface talking to her. At the time of recording this episode, I'm looking at Amazon.com and the recovering ranks in the best 3,000 selling titles today and 21st best in addiction and recovery. That's quite amazing. There are millions of titles on Amazon, uh, so it's not hyperball to say this is a buzz book. And my guess would be the buzz is going to be heard for some time to come. Uh, My thumbs up for The Recovering is not universally felt. This much-touted literary love letter to Alcoholics Anonymous is too moral in its argument for the superiority of sobriety. That's uh, Rick Whitaker uh, from The Guardian. Here's his best attempt at a sideways compliment. The Recovering was written with honorable intentions, no doubt, but its author seems blind to a fundamentalism that reckons sobriety as absolutely good and intoxication as a sure sign of weakness. Jameson is increasingly pious, and pious against her own best judgment. She pays lip service to the progressive view that sobriety isn't for everyone but she's a missionary who wants to bring the light to people living in darkness to help them out of their illness and misery. Okay, so are these guardian comments meritless? Well, I'll weigh in with this prediction. 20 years from now, the recovering will still be meeting before the meeting or meeting after the meeting discussion amongst 12-step people or any mutual aid group. And Whitaker's Guardian Review, uh, not so much. Just say AA without being condescending, and you're going to win the wrath of a certain literary subculture that prays at the altar of Dr. Lance Dotus or the Orange Papers. Uh, like, I read anything that they put out, but uh, they uh, have a tendency to erroneously generalize in their 12-step critique. They oversimplify AA as being predicated on a certain orthodoxy of rituals, readings and shared beliefs, members and meetings being homogeneous, not heterogeneous. Yes, there is a conservative AA narrative, it's very popular, but you can find meetings and members that avoid praying if that's your thing or don't talk about the 12 steps specifically if that bugs you. For example, the aforementioned critic misses one of the fundamentals of memoir writing. As far as I can see, it's firsthand experience, not the findings of a double-blind, placebo-controlled, and longitudinal study. So telling our story unabashedly has a certain amount of passion, and right, more scientific writing avoids that. The Guardian used the word fundamentalism. That's a good feeding frenzy word if you're playing to a certain uh, predictable audience. Uh, You know, I can see why writers attempted to do that. It sells. If the sobriety movement is fundamentalist, then I'm in the sobriety movement, so I must be fundamentalist too. But I don't demonize my drinking days. You'll never hear me say, I would not trade my best day drinking for my worst day sober, or whatever that cliche is. I don't see sobriety as a higher state of being. It's just a life choice. Look at AA's outreach message. Does it sound fundamentalist to you? If you want to drink and can, that's your business. If you want to quit but can't, that's our business. Call AA. That isn't prohibitionism. If you don't need to quit drinking, don't. If you need to quit drinking... And don't need AA, don't come. But if you need to stop and you can't, then there's a seat waiting for you. See you at my home group if you want, Monday, Thursday, or Saturday night at 7 p.m. Otherwise, we're on no membership drive in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we won't get uh, our nose in your business if you want to keep drinking or use some other support network, Live and Let Live. Maybe the problem for some critics is the blurring of genres. Uh, We heard uh, Leslie Jameson sharing about how readers want more memoir and others want more historical journalism. Uh, They find that one uh, is distracting from the other. Stay in your lane. Uh, Rebellion Dogs regulars uh, remember the uh, criticism uh, that beseeched a drunk mum, a memoir, the 2014 Jovita Bidlaska book. You can do a memoir, you can do a crash and burn drunkolog, but don't be candidly writing about passing out beside your baby buggy and not recollecting the events leading up to your park bench nap. Some reviews of Jovita's book reeked of righteous indignation. Uh, so much for the liberal myth that we're ending the stigma of addiction. Some things are hardwired into human beings, and judging others is one of them. If you wake up and you don't know where your panties are or your baby is, you're going to face a certain amount of criticism. And if you write about it, you're going to be considered the scourge of uh, memoirs. Anyway, I love the book. I think uh, Drunk Mom is a must-read, and it hasn't, uh, uh, hasn't lost anything uh, since it came out in 2014. Oh, and uh, regarding that uh, busy lobby you heard us talking in with Leslie Jameson, uh, thanks to uh, Melanie, that's Leslie's Canadian publicist, and to our guest from episode 36, author David Bowle, who wrote uh, Parallel Universe. He put the idea in my head uh, to make sure I read this book, uh, which led to my uh, inviting her onto our show. So thanks, David. Uh, thanks, uh, Melanie. That was June 2, 2018, at the King Edward Hotel in Toronto. And thanks, uh, Kim S., who uh, said hello. She's the area delegate for Area 83, uh, which is um, Eastern Ontario International. And um, she gave us that inside look at the General Service Conference in April. She talked about uh, a new pamphlet, The God Word, Atheists and agnostics and AA, and many of the other highlights of a busy conference week. That interview I did with uh, John S. from AA Beyond Belief is still on their site. I'll probably post it on Rebellion Dogs sometime, but you can go find it there, aabeyondbelief.org. It's a good uh, inside look at what goes on at AA's General Service Conference. Now, if you've read Leslie's book, I would love to hear from you. What was your experience? If you haven't read it, RebellionDogsPublishing.com has a reading room, and we've got about 40 or 50 of our favorite books there, and you can can get to Amazon from there. It's a substantial book, 500-plus pages. If you're interested in the creative process and addiction and recovery, what's not to love about the recovering? Get it, read it, and let me know your reaction. We've talked before about uh, anhedonia, which is a condition, usually temporary, that sometimes comes with early recovery. Nothing is pleasing. Our giggling children don't please us. We don't feel pleasure from uh, work or sex or food or music. These things that used to give us uh, such a escape from reality just don't. We stay in this blasé state. And it seems like a punishment for being an addict, a life sentence, which is sobriety. Uh, This depressed state leads many alcoholics and addicts to think they'll never be creative or joyful. They'll never be focused or prolific. Uh, Nikki Seeley in Withdrawal.net writes anhedonia doesn't make addicts throw up feel achy all over or break out in a sweat instead this condition makes addicts feel flat and unable to find any joy in life the unchanging and perpetual feeling of depression can make them feel emotionally empty and somewhat lost in the world things that would normally make them Smile don't have the same effect on people who are struggling with anhedonia, especially during early recovery. During acute and chronic withdrawal, anhedonia is frequently seen in alcoholics and opioid addicts. Research has also shown that the conditions equally affects uh, cocaine, stimulant, and cannabis abusers. What's more, scientists have discovered a significant link between anhedonia, drug craving, intensity of withdrawal, symptoms, and uh, personality characteristics. So healthcare workers unfamiliar with addiction may diagnose us as depressed and medicate some of us. In some cases, uh, we would return to our normal, fun-loving selves just after we dry out. It could take a few weeks or a few months. You know how some people get a pink cloud in early recovery? Well, other people get the other side of the coin. You can see how artists might wonder if they will ever be inspired again. But Mojo can come back.
2: I'll go back to the 60s, recharge my Mojo, defeat Dr. Evil, and be back in time for tea.
0: Graham Isidore of Vice.com wrote in uh, 2007, What happens when you finally stop drinking on stage? Isidore reports, On a recent episode of Mark Marin's What the Fuck podcast, The comedian announced he had celebrated 18 years of sobriety. I decided to reach out to Marin and ask him what the main difference was in performing sober compared to when he was using. His email response was shortened to the point. I'm not hiding. Of Drew Thompson, lead singer of the band Single Mothers, Isidore was told, Most of my accomplishments I've done while in a deep haze of booze. Drunk Drew. Drunk Drew started the band. Drunk Drew is on stage. It's Drunk Drew's band. I never gave sober Drew any credit. I was scared I couldn't do it sober. When I drank, I thought I was filling a prescription. The booze keeps you thinking you need it. Regarding sobriety, Thompson says, Oddly, I have almost zero stage fright now. I used to think, oh no, I haven't had enough to drink. I don't want to go on, but... That's when I thought booze gave me some kind of superpower. I was under a spell. Now that the spell is lifted, I know I can play great sober, or sick, or tired. I don't really give a fuck now. Just let me on the stage and I'll do my best. It's a personal choice. I have no problem at all being around people who are drinking. Usually it's just a reminder why I stopped. Alice Cooper talked to Craig Ferguson about the stage fright of early sobriety while they were on The Late Late Show in 2005. Alice was 23 years sober at the time. Looking back at his relationship with whiskey, he wondered, how could Alice be sober? My psychiatrist said the funniest thing, how much do you drink on stage? I never, while the character Alice never drinks on stage. I told him this, and my psychiatrist said, so, you blame everything on Alice, but Alice doesn't drink. And that's right. For me, the two hours on stage, I never touch a drop. It's the only two hours I don't drink. It wasn't the monster after all. It was Dr. Frankenstein. I was a pleasant drunk. I was an alcoholic who never missed a show, never slurred a word, never stumbled, never missed an interview. I was a consummate professional a functional alcoholic, and that was a problem. Nobody saw a problem. But I was drinking a bottle of VO a day. Now, I remember Stevie Ray Vaughan talking about how he thought he was in the zone when he was playing drunk. He thought he killed it, and he'd ask his engineer for the tapes from the night before. The morning after the night before, the session sounded sloppy. His voice was pitchy. He would argue that this can't be the tapes from last night. Give me last night's. Last night I killed it. You must be giving me the wrong dates recordings. His memory was as intoxicated as he was. In early sobriety, Stevie Ray Vaughan wondered, how are you going to write the blues? Where would inspiration come from? And what about stage fright? I had the great pleasure of seeing Stevie Ray Vaughan perform live sober. He and the audience knew he was on top of his Texas rock and blues game. Eric Clapton, who'd been sober when Stevie started finding rock bottom, was a vital influence in Stevie Ray's recovery. Stevie told Jim Washburn of the LA Times in 1988 about Eric Clapton's impact. He'd been sober for a time when we first met, and I was drinking heavy. He didn't tell me what to do or not to do. He just looked at me, drinking, and said, Yeah, I guess sometimes you got to go through that, don't you? He knew I had to hit bottom myself before I could get up, and some of the things he told me turned out to be the principles of the program I use today. Clapton also visited Stevie Ray Vaughan when he was in treatment. That helped for all different reasons. Because I knew he cared, because I knew he was through this, Because we could talk about it, and it also helped that someone like him would come see someone like me. What an advantage to any addict, artist, or single parent to have someone you know and respect tell you that better days are still ahead. Sober Stevie Ray would record In Step in 1989. Isn't that an album name that's an ode to recovery for those in the know? Family Styles, written with his uh, brother, Jamie Vaughn, would be a 1990 release, and The Sky is Crying, 1991, was written after his, uh, his death, a tragic helicopter accident. The song Crossfire, it was a number one hit in 1989. And for my money... That's as good a 4 minutes and 10 seconds of blues rock that's ever been written or performed. Emily Motif, a songwriter, actor and producer of WBEZ podcast Pleasure Town, in being a sober artist for sobernation.com, Emily writes, "The incredible thing about my sobriety has been its efforts on my artistic process." What a damn relief to see a project through to the end. That never happened before. She's grateful to be a sober artist. A very big part of me feels lucky to have maintained my career throughout my struggles with addiction. Many lose everything. Many don't recover. Of the qualities of her work today, Emily writes, My art is better. My music is more honest. My performance, they're more grounded. My ability to access my emotions is simultaneously refreshing and alarming. Who would have thought that refraining from drinking myself into a blackout and snorting coke for breakfast would result in better quality work? Weird. So through the storytelling process for the performing arts, fine artists, or writers finding sobriety, stories have been told about passing through the fear that booze is a muse. Will I be creative? Will I be prolific? While it's not a cookie-cutter formula for everybody, searching for answers in our uh, collective history does offer some conclusive insight. Why I like Jameson's book is she did some homework and let the history, the characters, and the evidence tell the story. Sure, she weaves her own memoir through the story, but that's authentic. What motivates the writer? What's her bias? What brought her to this research? Jameson's personal story in The Recovering lays her chips on the table. There's no hidden agenda. But the fact that she doesn't rely on her own anecdotal, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, is what separates this book from if you have time to kill, to a highly recommended book. Many of you know I got to know Dr. Ernie Kurtz in the last years of his life. We would often uh, shoot the shit about recovery biz, the publishing industry, and of course the place where those two uh, activities meet. He was kind enough to write the foreword to my book, and that is a validation I've tried to live up to uh, ever since. Between uh, Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous, The Spirituality of Imperfection, and its 20-year follow-up, Experiencing Spirituality, Ernie's learned the publishing and recovering ropes from 1979 when he did his Ph.D. uh, dissertation for history at Harvard, which later became... Uh, Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous, to 2015 when he died. He he did a lot of writing, some of it academic, some of it clinical, some of it consumer-based. He had a term about some publishing houses and some authors that kind of surprised me coming from a seminary student, (laughs) which he was before he was a historian. He called it uh, recovery porn, And I was left to figure out exactly what he meant as we carried on. Well, porn, it sells you based on your own need for connection. But what it delivers is not connection, but isolation and shame. Some feel-good self-help books offer short-term comfort in an empty-calorie-hungry-again-in-two-days kind of way. Not all reading is nourishing, while all reading fills your time. I think I've mentioned this book before, but I'm bringing it up again. In uh, Promised Land, uh, my journey through America's self-help culture, uh, author Jessica Lam Shapiro helps unpack the confusion in the self-help genre, a kind of an American consumer product. Uh, she has a story about Mark Victor Hansen. He co-authored Chicken Soup for the Soul, a bestseller, that went from a book to a brand, a series of books, to a Tony Robbins-esque seminar that he would put on on how to make a million dollars telling people what they want to hear. Lam Shapiro uh, doesn't say that exactly. Uh, That's just my take on his uh, sort of magical thinking franchise. Here's what she says. As Americans, self-help reflects our core beliefs, self-reliance, social mobility, an endless ability to overcome obstacles, a fair and equal pursuit of success, and the inimitable proposition that every single human being wants and deserves a stack of cash. Hansen preaches that if you want it, you can have it, you just have to believe. And he doesn't preach this to consumers anymore. He preaches this to authors and would-be authors. The self-help genre yields $10 billion in the U.S. alone every year. The average Amazon indie author makes $100 a year. (laughs) So there are plenty of prospects for Hansen to inspire with his dream of escaping writer's poverty. Lindsay Myers wrote something I kept in um, Brain Blogger. It's about the self-help genre. In addition to high revenues, self-help also has a high recidivism rate, with the most likely purchaser for a self-help book being the same person who purchased one already or in the last uh, 18 months. This begs the question, how good are these self-help books and seminars? What are they doing for the consumer? If they are so effective at solving our problems, why do we usually result to a continuing stream of self-help purchases? Now, in fairness, mystery lovers will buy another mystery after this one is done. I buy more books on addiction and recovery, and that doesn't mean they don't work just because I feel undernourished again and reach out for another book. But just like there is nutritious whole food and there is junk food, the junk food of the publishing industry is what Ernie Kurtz dismisses as, as he calls it, recovery porn. William White, in his June 1st William White papers this year, shines a light on the treatment industry in the same shaming way for opportunists in what he called, Recovery Porn, A Story of Healers and Hustlers. So Bill White writes this, Vague but passionate promises of a new approach always garner more hope than the known limitations of current efforts, and any industry that has attracted substantial financial capital will draw a subset of individuals and organizations who will sacrifice public health and safety for personal and corporate profit. When such limitations and abuses are exposed, there exists the risk that a social institution's probationary status will be revoked and their functions transferred to other institutions within their organizational environment. Aware of such risks, most fields develop standards or organizational and professional practices that maximize effectiveness and elevate ethical decision-making. Such prospective devices help assure that exposés of industry shortcomings are viewed as the misconduct of particular organizations and individuals and not a reflection on the industry as a whole. Uh, on that note, in the fall, I'm uh, studying uh, Joe Nowinski's book, which is a 12-step facilitation guide for professionals. And in that book, he makes a case why, how 12-step facilitation is as effective as motivational interviewing, or CBT, and it costs way less Because the follow-up costs are, what, $2 to $5 a week for someone to go to meetings, compared to the cost of a therapist uh, indefinitely. But anyway, I'm, uh, under the guise of ethical practices, I'm doing a presentation on uh, a secular view to 12-step facilitation. Don't make the atheists and agnostics speak in a God-fearing, theistic language allow them to narrate their own sort of journey through the principles of the 12 steps without having to speak theistic language, including spirituality, which is a word some don't use, or higher power, which is a word some don't use. Anyway, we're doing that in Houston as part of NADAC's annual conference. Attendees who are in the treatment field will receive continuing education credits under the uh, ethics and practices banner, which is kind of cool. It's just improving the way they deal with underrepresented minorities in the recovery community. Now if you want to read the rest of uh, William White's uh, white paper uh, you can go to Rebellion Dogs Publishing Rebellious Radio. Look for episode 38 and it'll have all the notes for this and anything else I've quoted or referred to. So the point I'm making is Leslie Jameson's work is in the whole food category of reading calories. At least for me, I get put off by books that make subjective statements as facts without any source, counterposition, or research. Read anything you want that makes you happy. I don't aim to censor anyone's reading habits. But In a sea of addiction recovery literature, I think much is as disposable as facial tissue. The recovering is worth reading and keeping as a reference tool if you love authors and you love recovery. So, uh, we're going to finish with a little artistic uh, expression. I'm done now. Uh, How about a shout-out again to Leslie Jameson. Thanks for spending time with us on Rebellion Dogs Radio. I uh, volunteer at uh, the Toronto Treatment Centre Bellwood Health Services. I do a Wednesday morning aftercare with Lucy, who is the bassist and lead singer for Acid Test. And you're about to hear a segment I edited out of an IndyCan radio show for Sirius XM because I was saving it for you here on Rebellion Dogs Radio. We'll get to some sober-inspired writing. And performing, and a song called "Ordinary People." So here we go. This is uh, a 2018 recording, but it's as '90s sounding as Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, Garbage, or Portishead at all.
2: Hi, this is Lucy
0: and Steve from, from Acid, Acid Test. Test.
2: The reason uh, we titled it uh, "Just Right," just apostrophe, uh, because uh, Mike our DJ who passed in uh, 2012. That was his DJ moniker. um, DJ Just Right. So we're like...
0: Okay. This right is on. for him, okay, and yeah. he was
2: a major catalyst of why when that happened, tragically in 2012, uh, unexpectedly, um, it did bring us together in, as far as communicating because we realized, wow, one of us is no longer here. And he was actually the one who t- probably tried through the years to get this thing back together, like right. to, to reunite. So yeah. we kind of felt like this is like a calling. He's the
0: muse. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah.
2: So yeah. Uh, Lucy, mm-hmm.
0: favorite song and why?
2: I guess my, I, I'm i going to say ordinary ways. Lyrically, it means something to me in terms of it's, I don't want to say autobiographical, but it's a message that I wanted to kind of put out there, kind of cathartic for me, but also to spotlight on uh, mental illness one way or just somebody who's just not, doesn't quite fit into the mold of the your regular kind of person, and that could be even a band or an artist type thing, but lyrically, that means something to me, and... Yeah, I'll say ordinary ways.
0: being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Feel free to repost, download, or email this show to anyone you see fit. For show notes and links, visit RebellionDogspublishing.com and look under Rebellious Radio, Episode 38.